was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so glad to be able to present to you part two of my conversation with legendary press agent Susan L. Shulman. I know you're all eager to hear what she has to say, so without further ado, here's our talk. So... Early in your career, you did a few shows at theaters off-Broadway, including Theater 4. So so how did you sort of witness off-Broadway coming to the dominance that it has now? Hmm. Well, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't as dominant then. Um, it was um, much less important, I guess would be the way to say it. Um, uh, although the critics paid attention even back then. I mean, they, they paid more attention than they do now. Oh, uh, interestingly, you know, there's, there's also fewer important critics now, but they, they did. I, it's funny cause I'm going through old files of shows and things I'd forgotten about. Probably you remember more than I do. Um, but I'm going through files and I see, you know, these little shows that were, as you say, in off Broadway theaters and all the major critics covered them. Yeah, and I don't think they would probably now, you know, so that's probably the most, to me anyway, as a press agent, that was probably the the biggest change. Yeah. So I want to ask you about, you worked with an all-star comedy cast on the play No Hard Feelings uh, with Eddie Albert and Nanette Fabre. So what was this like? And Stockard Channing. Yeah. Stockard Channing was nobody really knew who she was at that point. She had, she had, um, I think she had just made a movie or was about to make a movie with, I don't know, Jack Nicholson or somebody. She it was, but she was, she was, nobody had ever heard of her. Um, and the, the big sort of big yuck of the play was that the mother and daughter are pregnant at the same time. But it was one of those plays where, because it was kind of a one joke story. Yeah. You couldn't use photographs of the two women pregnant because that would sort of give away the whole plot and then there was no play. And so we had to publicize a show um, and basically not tell anybody what it was about and not give away any of it with a photograph. So I had these wonderful pictures of the two women with these big pregnant bellies, like facing each other with their bellies touching and stuff. And we couldn't use them because it was like, if you gave it away, then there was kind of nothing, no reason to see the play. Um, But it was a wonderful cast. And unfortunately it wasn't a wonderful play and it lasted, you know, a minute. Yeah. And, um, uh, but I, I, I did get to work with Nanette Fabre, who was adorable and wonderful and couldn't have been lovelier. And I don't remember Eddie Albert as much. I don't think I had that much to do with him. 
Um, and Stocker Channing was just this kind of unknown person in the cast. Yeah. It's interesting. I want to ask you, have you ever represented a show that had sort of a breakthrough making someone a star? Yes, I have. And I'm, well, I mean, there have been several shows where somebody has been, has been wonderful for a long time. And then that was the one that pushed them over the top. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, well, for instance, it didn't, uh, um, I, I worked with Kathleen Chalfant during Angels in America. Oh. And Kathy was a personal client. I wasn't handling angels. I was handling Kathy. And Kathy had been this working actress for 20 years. She'd done a million off-Broadway shows. She'd been involved with angels from the very beginning, from the very first reading of, of that Tony Kushner had put on. Kathy was part of that cast. And I don't know if you know how much you know about angels in America. You probably know everything. But the, the initial group of actors um, were just assigned roles kind of willy-nilly. They weren't, you know, they weren't written with a particular actor in mind. Um, he, Tony had these actors that he wanted to be in it, but he hadn't, hadn't designated specific roles. So one day, the actor that was supposed to play one of the male roles was late. Oh. And Tony said to Kathy, you read that part. It was the doctor or something or the old rabbi, one of those parts. And so she read the part and it was just for a reading. It was just, you know, around the table sort of reading. And he liked it. And so it stuck. And so she wound up playing several male roles and several female roles in Angels in America just because of things that happened during the creation of the play. But Kathy had been one of those workmanlike actors who had worked consistently for years and nobody knew who she was except people in the theater. But her, her agent, who, who I knew, said to her, I think Angels in America is going to change your career and I want you to have somebody looking out for you, you know, a press agent. And Kathy, who is not at all like that, said, I don't think so. I don't, that's not, you know, I don't think so. And, and he said, no, I think you should talk to Susan Shulman. She's not, you know, going to, she's, she's not a killer. You know, she's going to work with you. And so she came to see me and I said to her, I don't, I, you know, I don't know if I'm the right person or not, but I mean, I can see we have a rapport, but I, but it is absolutely the right moment for you to do this, yeah. whether it's me or somebody else, you should definitely have somebody looking out for you because this is a moment where you're going to move into the next level. And the interesting thing is she's not, not a killer and I'm not a killer. And if you want a killer, you don't want me, you know, it's not, yeah. that's just not who I am. I'm a good press agent, but I'm not going to, you know, kill 12 people to get you a story. Yeah. And, and some will. And she and I, just clicked and it was a very good fit. And I think as a result of the help that I gave her, I didn't make her wonderful. She's a wonderful actress and she was always a wonderful actress, but the work that we did together raised her to the next level in terms of visibility and people in the industry knowing who she was. And as a result of that, her career changed. Now, I didn't make her wonderful and I didn't make angels in America wonderful and I didn't make her wonderful in angels. And you know, I'm not, I take no credit for any of that. But the fact was that 
having somebody like me helping her at that moment definitely changed the the trajectory of her career. Yeah. So it was very, and, and the same thing happened with Karen Ziemba. Again, I wasn't handling the show. I was, she, when, when she was, but I, I knew Karen from earlier. She had been in um, Crazy for You and with Harry Groner, and I was working with Harry Groner. And when she was going to be in contact, we had some mutual friends and they said, you should talk to Susan. And so we talked. And again, she was somebody that was very reluctant to have a personal press agent, didn't, didn't feel comfortable. And I said, I understand that, but you're right to do it. You're right to do it at this moment. It's, you know, whether it's me or somebody else, you're right. And um, again, I didn't make her wonderful. She is extraordinary in every way and is, you know, terrific. But, but the, the visibility she got through things that I did and changed the way she was perceived in the industry, I think. Uh, the go-to girl if you wanted a, a singer, dancer, actress who could replace somebody in, as the lead in the show. Um, but nobody cast her as the, you know, to create the role. They cast her to, to, to replace. Yeah. And she'd, re- and she'd replaced in a million shows and been wondering crazy for you. Um, and was wonderful always. And people loved her. But contact was being created for her by Susan Stroman. And it was clearly her moment. Yeah. And, um, and so that was a time when I think that the work we did together really changed how she was perceived. Suddenly people saw her as a star where before they saw her as good old Karen who could do everything and was always going to be great, but was good old Karen. And suddenly, and it was some, some of it was getting designers to dress her. You know, some of it was just, just talking in a different way about her career and all of that changed again. And and then she won the Tony, which was, again, I take no credit for her winning the Tony. She won the Tony because she was fabulous. You know, it wasn't, I didn't, people say, Oh, you got it. I didn't get her the Tony, but but the, but the way she was perceived and her, her visibility in the industry had changed. And so that may have contributed to it, you know. So, so those are sort of two examples where I can't say that I discovered them or anything. Of course, I didn't. Yeah. But I, I think I helped change how they were perceived. So you were mentioning the Tonys, and I'm curious – what has been your experience as a press agent with the Tonys, either for your clients or for yourself? Or? Well, the first time I went to the Tonys, I wasn't even in the union. It was for applause. Um, and I had, was working on applause. I thought, And Bill Dahl um, said to me one day, um, you should come with me to the Tonys. Well, I, I couldn't, I mean, I thought I've died, you know, I thought, Yes. Okay. Fine. You know, and I, um, so I, the first time I got to go to the Tonys, my star and my show won Tonys, which was pretty, pretty amazing, you know, and, and, you know, went out afterwards with my cast and, you know, it was magic. You know, I just couldn't believe it. Um, And since then I've gone a few more times. And in fact, most recently with, both Karen Ziemba and with um, uh, Karine Plantedy, who was nominated for the Twilight Art musical. Um, but it's very different now. The press agents 
are in another building. Oh, you know this? There's no, a, there's a press. It's very peculiar. The press agents are there's a press room that's literally in another building. So you you meet your star, your whoever you're accompanying. You do the red carpet outside of where, wherever you know Radio City, wherever it is, and then they go in, and you go to another building, and you watch the Tonys on monitors with all the reporters that are covering the Tonys as press. Yeah. And when somebody wins, they're brought, after they come off stage having accepted their Tonys, they're scooped up and brought over to the press room where they're, they appear and they're asked questions and they're, they, they give answers. Now, if you're the press agent for one of the nominees and they win, you rush over to the theater Scoop you, you're the one that scoops them up and meets, you know, gets them at the stage door, wherever you get you've arranged, and you bring them back to the press room and they do the all the media interviews. Oh, so, and if your client doesn't win, you don't rush over to the stage door and scoop them up, but you wait until the end of the show and then you meet them at the stage door to say, gee, I'm really sorry, and then they go off to the party and you go home. That's kind of the drill. So it's sort of like being Cinderella, who doesn't go to the ball. It's very, it's very peculiar. So you worked on a big hit play, which was Thieves by Herb Gardner. So I want to ask you in general, do you find that a comedy or a drama is easier to sort of market? Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I mean, just on a personal basis, it's more fun with a comedy usually, um, but, but not always. I mean, Death and the Maiden was very, 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 very heavy drama. Um, it's about torture, political torture. It was all very heavy, but it was being directed by Mike Nichols, who was really a lot of fun to be around. So yeah. you, you felt like you were one of the, um, one of the cool kids when you were at rehearsal because it was, it was Mike Nichols, you know, yeah. and if, if Mike Nichols, you know, kidded around with you, you would try to be as cool as Mike Nichols and funny as Mike, which, which was very hard to do because it was Mike Nichols. But, you know, you find you kind of felt like that was like the best place in the world to be at that moment. So that was different, but I don't think there's that much difference from my end of it. No. Yeah. Mm. So what was it like to be able to work with Herb Gardner? Who is it? I didn't get to, I really didn't get to do very much with him. Um, Cause I was, I was the low man on the totem pole on that one. So I didn't get to be that involved um, more with the actors and, you know, yeah. so I, I didn't have, I didn't have much to do. I wish I did. Cause he was also one of the cool kids. Yeah. So in, in that play were two TV stars, Marlo Thomas and Dick Van Patten. Mm -hmm. so what is it like to sort of work with TV stars in a Broadway? Again, I don't really have very many memories of that. It was very short-lived, you know, it was short-lived. And I think, I'm trying to remember, Marlo, Marlo replaced, did Marlo replace Valerie or did Valerie replace Marlo? Do you remember? I think Valerie Harper. Yeah. I think he replaced Marlo Thomas. I think it was that way, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was all very peculiar because they were all buddies. 
And I think maybe they were dating each other. Or I think somebody was dating somebody, maybe Marlo Thomas and Herb Garner. I don't know. It was all very peculiar. And so, um, uh, you know, I we were all sort of at a distance. But again, it was very, it was a long time ago. It was also very early in my career. So I didn't have as much direct contact as I did in some of the shows. Yeah. You know, because I was very much low man. So I want to ask you, have you ever had to sort of rehaul a press campaign when a replacement comes in? Yeah, I mean, all the time. You know, it happens a lot, more than you think. I mean, not not always the big star, but sometimes it is, you know. I mean, the worst of them was um, The Merchant. But we had, but we had this whole play that was completely focused on the fact that it was Zero Mostel yeah. playing Shylock. You know, I mean, that was the, that's what we were selling. Nobody cared that it was a retelling of The Merchants of Venice or that it was directed by John Dexter or it was written by, nobody cared about any of that. They only cared, they, they wanted to see Tevye, you know, they wanted to see the producers, you know, they wanted this, this actor that they loved. They wanted to see him on stage and suddenly they weren't going to see this actor on stage. They were going to see some other guy they'd never heard of playing the part and, and in his wearing his costumes. I mean, it was awful. So suddenly it became, um, you know, Zero Mostel in the Merchant to some guy you never heard of in the Merchant, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, it was it was awful. It was awful. And it didn't it truly didn't have a chance. Yeah. Just, you know, and that's why a lot of images are very specific to a, an actor and a lot of them aren't. I mean, just for our um, listeners reference, the show we're talking about here is a streetcar named Desire. Using uh, Jessica Tandy and Alec Baldwin. We used to call that the clutching picture <laughs> because it's it's um, it was po it was taken by a photographer who took them to a studio and posed them in costumes they didn't wear in the show in this very romantic pose, um, which didn't happen in the play. It totally misrepresented what, what um, Streetcar Named Desire was. Yeah. It was, it was just, we used to call it the clutching picture because he's clutching. He, I don't know if you can see, he's clutching at her. And, you know, I thought it was a terrible representation of the play, but the producers were selling sex and they were selling movie stars and that's what that poster was you know and it sold a lot of tickets so they were right you know the the death and the maid if you remember that image it's three sets of eyes that's all it is and mike nichols who was very clever didn't want to bill the actors. He didn't want to get use their names, which drove everybody else crazy because we had three movie stars. We had Glenn Close and Richard Dreyfus and Gene Hackman. But but Mike Nichols said they're they're all so famous. Let's take like a newspaper uh, picture of them and just rip it up and make it just their eyes. And that's what he had the advertising agency do. It was it was Frank Verlizzo, Fravor, you know, who's a oh, famous designer. He's a friend of mine. And Fravor ripped up these pictures and, and found these three sets. And, and actually, Mike Nichols picked out the pictures. He had three three movie pictures that he wanted. And he said, 
And, and so, so Frank made a, a mock-up with just the eyes. And Mike Nichols says, that's it. That's the image I want for the show. And everybody said, but we need to put their names in. And he kept saying, no, I don't want their names in. And everybody kept saying, got to have their names. <laughs> you know, I've got three movie stars. No names, just their eyes. Everybody will know. And of course, nobody knew who they were because it was just. Anyway, eventually they convinced him that we needed the three names, which helped. But then they realized that these three, they, they had to get the rights for these three photos of the eyes. Mm -hmm. Because Mike Nichols had just picked them out. He just said, I want that one, that one, that one. And it turned out that they had to go to three different like movie studios to get the rights to these pictures, which was a big deal because, you know. And I think we, we're never sure, but Mike Nichols said, I'll take care of it. And we think he called up all three movie studios. And because it was Mike Nichols, they gave them the rights. But it was one of those crazy you, things. Because you've led me into a segue to asking you about Death of a Maiden. Okay. So you were mentioning it starred Richard Dreyfus, Glenn Close, and Gene Hackman. Mm -hmm. So did they all sort of work well together in addition to? They did. The, the, um, they, they worked very well together. And um, Mike Nichols, who, who was just terrific, um, created this sort of family unit. So it was the three of them and Mike, and then there was the rest of the world. So they were the inner core. And then sometimes they'd let other people, you know, play, but they were the, they were the core. And so they were very tight and, um, and, and they were wonderful, but they were very insular. So you, you, you know, it was hard to get to them a little bit, but the one funny thing that happened was that Richard Dreyfus has a thing about photographs of himself. He didn't like to, he didn't like to look at photographs of himself and he didn't, he, he didn't approve photographs. And he just had a thing about looking at himself in photographs. And outside of the theater, there were three very large boards uh, for photos. And so I had single shots of all three of the actors in costume and in, in, in character that I wanted to mount in these three boards. The problem was I had um, gone to Glenn Close and she had approved a picture and I'd gone to Gene Hackman who said, I don't care, just you pick something. He didn't even look at them. And then I went to Richard Dreyfus and he rejected all the pictures. So I then, said, but he said, but I have a picture, I'll send you a picture. So he sends me a picture of himself in a jeans jacket, except that a, that was completely wrong for the play. You couldn't have the, the other two in, in costume and then have Richard Dreyfus and, you know, looking like he was off the street. It just yeah. it was wrong. So I, I went, I tried again and he said, no, I don't like any of these pictures. So I get a call one day and he says, Mike Nichols wants to talk to you. I said, okay. So I go see Mike Nichols and he says, why are those pictures not up outside? And I said, well, I have a problem. I said, I have two of the three approved, but I can't get Richard Dreyfus to approve a picture. Um, and it seems wrong to me to put up two and not three. And he says, put up the other two. I say, really? He said, do it. Mike Nichols tells you to do it. So I have the other two pictures put up and like, 
two seconds after the pictures went up, I get a phone call from Richard Dreyfus. He says, Susan, um, can you bring those contact sheets back to the theater for me to look at again? And so he approved the picture. Mike Nichols was very smart. Yeah. He knew how to do it. So because they were all such big movie stars uh, on Broadway, were they all sort of willing to do a lot of interviews and press? For no, they weren't willing to do anything. And, and, oh. I, and, and it was interesting because here I had these three really big movie stars and Mike Nichols, who couldn't have been more famous. Yeah. And they, because I think they all felt that the, the fact that they were all in this play and they were good in the play wasn't, wasn't the greatest play, but they, they were good in the play, was enough. And so they didn't feel the need to do any real publicity. And so the playwright, who really thought the only reason anybody was interested in the play was him anyway. He, he didn't seem to be that <laughs> impressed with the movie stars or Mike Nichols. So he did a lot of publicity and really nobody cared because... <laughs> It wasn't really what they wanted. Um, and ironically, uh, I mean, it, it, the play lasted as long as the three movie stars were in it. And then it was over, you know, and that was it. Yeah. And it went, they went on to make a movie of it later, um, which I don't think was terribly successful. With I think Sigourney Weaver was in it, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but it was a very unpleasant play with three kind of unpleasant people. And yeah. if it hadn't been for the fact that they were three movie stars, I don't think anybody would have been interested at all. You know, yeah. uh, it was very strange, but it was, oh, it, it, the best part was the mooning. Do you know about the mooning? No. Oh, well, um, the front, the front, um, the show curtain, you know, the, what the audience sees when they come in was some kind of, reflective material that made it like a one-way mirror so when you were in the audience you just saw a curtain you just saw something with reflective maybe a mirror looked like a mirror yeah but if you were on stage it was clear so you could see the audience so if you were standing on the standing on the stage it was very peculiar because you felt like you could be seen this is before the show started you felt you were being seen because you could see the audience, but they couldn't see you. So every night before the performance began, the actors would go on stage and moon the audience. <laughs> and at first it was, you know, like maybe one of the actors and maybe the production stage manager. And then it became maybe two of the actors and a couple of stage hands. And then it became all the actors <laughs> And Mike Nichols would come out and moon the audience. And it became a thing. And it was hysterical because they would, just, you know, the, here was this very serious, heavy play about torture and everything. Yeah. And they would all come out and drop their drawers and, and moon the audience. <laughs> and then they would do this very serious play. And um, Mike Nichols was married to uh, Diane Sawyer, who was around during Death of a Maiden. And opening night Diane Sawyer came and mooned the audience before the show <laughs> it was great <laughs> so it was it was a very entertaining part of the show before the show yeah 
So morning, I want to ask you about Requiem for a Heavyweight. Ah, here's another show you did. So, yeah. what was it like to work with John Lithgow? Who oh, was he was wonderful. Uh, both of them, in fact, it's funny. I was just going through those um, that those files yesterday. Um, it, uh, it, it was a it was a very interesting production, and it was, I thought, one that should have had much more of a life. Um, and I don't know why it didn't. It just, he was wonderful, and um, this is co-star. They were very good in it. And it started in Florida, and then it came to New York, and it just didn't work, and it closed right away. It was very sad. Yeah. Um, Maria Tucci was in it. Was really it was very well done, I thought, but yeah, didn't didn't go. So the next show you did ran for much longer, which was crazy for you. Which well, again, I worked on Crazy for You as as Bill Evans' associate, and then, not too long after it opened, I left Bill's office and reopened my own office, and so I wound up um, having Harry Groner become my client, my personal client. So I wasn't handling the show anymore; I was just working with Harry. That's actually how I knew Karen Ziemba and a lot of other people. Um, but I I worked with Harry from his entire run of crazy for you. And so I was very involved with the show, obviously, but I didn't represent the show itself after the, after the first month or two. Oh. I love crazy for you. It was wonderful. What was it like to work with Susan Stroman, who is obviously a great. Oh, she was wonderful. I mean, I didn't get to work with her that much because by the time I was involved with it, all of that stuff was kind of done, you know, the, the all the pre-production and stuff was already had already happened. So I didn't get to work with her very much. I, 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 I know her a little bit. I don't know her very well, but she's so loved. I mean, everybody who works with her just, you know, would die for her. You know, she brings out the absolute best in people, I think. And, and then uh, go ahead. I, I want to ask you also about Harry Groner, who you were saying you've represented for. I represent, yes, Harry, Harry's true. I mean, he was a real, you know, like Karen Ziemba, you know, one of these triple threat guys who really can do it all. And um, he was wonderful and crazy for you. Terrific. You know, and, and another person who had been around, who, you know, been in lots of shows, hadn't had, had been on the cusp of it, but hadn't had that kind of, you know, over the title billing and, you know, um, I'm sure you're somebody that looks at, at uh, window cards and looks at billing and things like that. Yeah. And I always say, I can tell you by looking at a window card who the uh, publicity is going to be hung on. And if you look at Crazy for You, there's no actor billing. Oh. It's all. What does it say? It's the new Gershwin musical comedy. The new Gershwin musical, and there is billing in the billing box. Yeah, all you can see up there is the Gershwin musical, and I always say if you look at if you look at um, I can I can look at any window card, and I'll tell you who they're going to publicize in advance. And there's a perfect example was that the show was all about we're selling George Gershwin, we're selling the Gershwins. Yeah, and and if there happened to be actors playing the leading roles, that's nice. But we're selling the Gershwin musical, it's crazy for you. And that's what, and that's, that was a decision that was made and rightfully so, you know, 
but people, you know, dancing, the title of dancing is Bob Fosse's dancing. Yeah. That's what it says. It's not dancing, it's Bob Fosse's dancing. And there was a reason for that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no dancing without Bob Fosse, you know. So what do you think it was about Crazy For You that made it such a big hit? Um, everything about it was fun. You just had the best time. You, from yeah. the minute it started to the minute it ended, first of all, you went in knowing the songs. You went in, you know, humming during the overture. And that helps a lot. But also you just, it was just fun. You know, it was, it was there were moments in the show where you just thought, it doesn't get any better than that. You know, it's just wonderful. I mean, there was a moment in the show where um, the the chorus girls come to Dead Rock. You know, they, they, they've left New York and they're going to join, you know, they're going to be in the show in Dead Rock. And Susan Stroman staged it. So the chorus girls were seen in silhouette way upstage. And I think they were on a treadmill, but I'm not sure. They might not have been. But you just saw them. And there they were, these sexy, you know, dancers and get-ups and everything. And they, as they walked downstage towards the audience, it was like this, this hysterically funny and wonderful sight gag. You knew exactly who they were. You knew exactly what it was about. You knew that these, these, these chorus tootsies had come to this no-place town and they came strutting downstage, and it, you didn't you didn't even need the, the musical number after that. It was so delicious, you know. You just went, oh, this is what musical comedy is, you know. Visually, it was so perfect, and there were lots of things like that, you know. She's Stroman is so inventive, and she had so many clever sight gags and 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 musical, you know, the way she's just the way the dance numbers, which all went on for days and days and days and days. And they were just so delicious. And even the ending of the show, you know, it ends with this, with with Harry and and whoever the the Polly, the, the two of them are on a pedestal that rises up and they dance around and then they do the sort of classic Hollywood dip where, you know, the and you just go, oh, it's perfect. You know, it's just perfect. That's just exactly what I want to see at this moment in this, you know, it was perfect. So everything about it was wonderful. You just you just had a good time and you smiled through the whole thing and you sang. It was wonderful. So you worked with you worked with Alec Baldwin and Jessica Lang on A Streetcar Named Desire. Yes. So what was it like to be able to work with the two of them? Well, let me just say that they both had people. So you would go to him and say, um, would you be would you be interested in talking with the Today Show? And he'd say, talk to my people. And then you'd go to Jessica Lang and she and you'd say, would you um, uh, uh, can I interest you in doing an interview with The New York Times? And she'd say, talk to my people. So we used to say we didn't work with them. We worked with their people. <laughs> so they came to the show as movie stars and they. Pretty much acted like movie stars. And yeah. you don't really see that very much on Broadway. You really, you know, somebody's going to do it. They do it, you know, and and. Interestingly, he had been on Broadway before, but she hadn't. And um, I think she was quite scared. Um, but, but he was, 
he was not a novice, you know, but he just, they just were movie stars. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you find that sort of actors have changed from the new actors and then the veterans like George C. Scott, who you've also worked with? Well, he was kind of in a, in a class of his own, I think. Um, he, he had no ego. I mean, he really didn't, you, you know, as I, as I always say, he, he knew he was George C. Scott, you know, he, yeah. he didn't have to prove it. He, he, he knew he was George C. Scott and he knew he was a good actor and, you know, whatever his demons were, it wasn't about acting. It was about his maybe real life, but not, you know, so he was not, he didn't care about the, the showy stuff. He didn't care about any of that. It was really interesting because he, because you would think maybe he would, you know, but he didn't. He wasn't the least bit interested in where his name was and if he was over the title or if the image looked like him. Or he just didn't care about stuff like that. Um, so I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a matter of them then and now. I think it's a matter of who it is. You know, I think there are plenty of fabulous people who are on Broadway now who are just as talented and just as smart and just as gifted and everything else. You know, I don't think it's a like the times have changed and people aren't good anymore. I don't, I don't think that. Yeah. The only thing that's different to me is that shows aren't created for a star as much anymore, very rarely. Whereas they were, you know, in the sort of golden age of Broadway kind of thing where shows were written for Ethel Merman for her voice, for, for the, the notes that she could belt out, you know, or they were written for Mary Martin, or they were written for Julie Andrews for what they each brought to the table. And now they write, it's much more that they write a show and then they, they try to cast it. Yeah. You know, very few shows, for instance, I think are written for Patti Lapone. You know, I think somebody writes a show and then they see if they can get Patti Lapone. You know, it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if they get her, that's great. But they don't they didn't create it for her as a, as a vehicle for her so much. Um, you know, like the the one with the two diva ladies. Um, we, we talked about it last time. Yeah. More um, paint. paint. I don't think that was written for the two ladies. If it was, I don't know that. I mean, I think it was written for two good actresses. And yeah. I might be wrong, but I don't think it was written with them specifically in mind. Uh, and I might be wrong about that. Um, and instead, they, you know, they got two really terrific singing actresses who were wonderful. Um, yeah. But I think that's what's changed, you know, more than anything else is that they don't create sh- shows aren't created for somebody. Um, I mean, why doesn't somebody write a show for Leia Salonga? She was on television the other night at that concert, which was fabulous. And and you you just listen to her and you think, my God, she can sing anything. You know, she's so gifted. Yeah. And, you know, why is she not in, you know, maybe she doesn't want to do shows. I don't know. But I mean, why doesn't somebody write a show for her? You know, so far, the, the last few things she did, uh, she was in uh, Once on this Island, which she was very good in, but that she, it could have been anybody, you know, any good singer could have played that part. Yeah. And she was in, um, yes, Allegiance. She was in that, again, was a very, you know, she was very good in it, but that part could have been played by anybody, yeah. you know, wasn't, wasn't for her, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you think, well, here's this really, really talented woman, you know, 
why isn't somebody creating roles for her? It's interesting. So I want to ask you about a show you worked on called Metro, which has an all, all Russian cast, I believe. It's very peculiar. I think they were Polish. Weren't they Polish? Oh. I think they were Polish. Yeah. The, uh, it, was, it was just peculiar. It came over, it was this big, full-blown musical. I don't think anybody ever really knew what it was about. Um, everybody in the show was Polish. All the production people were Polish. So it was very hard to communicate. There were translators every place. And it was just, it was, it, it was just the hardest thing because you really, you know, you couldn't, for instance, as a press agent, you couldn't set up interviews for people because they didn't speak English. So, <laughs> Okay, so you could get a translator maybe, okay, but you also couldn't get people interested in talking to them because they never heard of any of them because they were all Polish. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so everything about it was peculiar and it wasn't very good and it opened and closed. Um, but it became one of those shows that was sort of notorious. And I always used to think, if all the people that wrote about it and talked about it had actually seen it, maybe it wouldn't have been such a flop, but yeah. they didn't. <laughs> I don't think any of them thought. I, I had a similar thing I worked with uh, for years. I represented Karen Mason. And at one point she was the uh, standby for Betty Buckley in Sunset Boulevard. And at the time, I knew exactly how many times Karen went on because every time she went on, we'd say she's going on for the sixth time or the seventh time. We knew how many times. And over the years, we used to laugh because hundreds of people would say to Karen, oh, I saw you in Sunset Boulevard. And we used to think, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> really, you didn't. Yeah. You know, but, you know, they wanted to have seen her, so they said they'd seen her but we used to think if all those people had seen her you know they would have had her replace Betty Buckley you know? <laughs> but they didn't but but it was very interesting about Metro because for years people have said to me oh Metro I saw Metro and I think no you didn't you didn't see Metro nobody saw Metro yeah it's so, terrible I want to ask you if you have any stories or good experiences with any stars who I would not know to ask you about because you worked with them, but not on a show. Well, I don't, I don't know if we've talked about Mary Martin at all. Have we talked? Well, I never actually worked with Mary Martin, but I was a theater kid like you. And I used to stand outside stage doors and write people letters. And I didn't really want their autograph. I wanted to tell them how they had changed my life. Yeah. And so people were very nice to me because who doesn't want to be told that, you know, I mean, it wasn't calculated. I just, that's how I felt. And the first time I saw Mary Martin was in the sound. I, I had seen her in Peter Pan when I was a little kid, but you know, but when I was a teenager, I saw her in sound and music and I wrote her a fan letter and she answered. And so I wrote her another fan letter and she answered and I wrote her another fan letter and she answered. And eventually I got up the nerve to say I was coming back to see the show and could I meet her afterwards? And she said, yes. And that began a sort of lifelong connection with her, who I absolutely adored. And um, I saw her over the years in everything she did. And she was always very, very generous and kind to me. And I, but I was a fan. I mean, I was just some girl, some kid that wrote to her. 
and yeah. she always answered. I found out years later that um, she did this with lots of people. That in fact, the person that edited my book, she corresponded with for years and years. I mean, you know, just she she did, and whether it was her or whether it was a secretary, who knows? But she, I mean, I have a book full of letters from Mary Martin, and the the full circleness of it is that many many years later, I was now a press agent, and and and. She knew I was a press agent and, you know, but I mean, I, she didn't, I mean, she wasn't a friend. She was Mary Martin, you know, yeah. and, and everybody, everybody knew that she was it for me. And years later, I was doing a show called The Merchant and The Merchant was going to follow a show. She was, she had returned after 10 years. She had been away from Broadway for 10 years because her husband had died and she was living in Brazil and she wasn't doing anything. And she decided to come back in a straight play called Do You Turn Somersault? And it was going to be at the Kennedy Center right before the merchant. This was before Zero Mustel had died. And so I was going down to Washington to do pre-publicity stuff for the merchant. And I was talking to the in-house press agent at the Kennedy Center. And he was talking about, do you turn somersaults to Mary Martin? And I said, oh, Mary Martin, I have this whole thing with Mary Martin. And I told him my story about being this uber fan of Mary Martin's. And he said, well, why don't you come down on this day? Because she and Anthony Quayle, who was the co-star, are going to be doing a live radio interview at the Kennedy Center. You could come to see that and see the show that night and then, you know, do your work. I go, oh, great. So I go to Washington and I go to the radio show, which is a live broadcast radio show. And during the court, now it's been at least 10 years since I've seen her and she doesn't, you know, I mean, she's Mary Martin. And during the course of the interview, they take questions from the audience. This is live. And some woman gets up and she says, well, I think it's a jip that you didn't sing in the show. I came to see Mary Martin sing and it was a jip. Oh. Can't insult Mary Martin in front of me. I'm sorry. So the next time they took questions from the audience, I get up to the microphone and I say on behalf of theater goers everywhere, how thrilled we are that she is back on the stage and we don't care if she reads the phone book as long as she's back on stage. <laughs> and both she and Anthony Quayle both go because they realize that I've saved what was a very awkward moment. Oh, I forgot. In between this, after this woman said, well, it was a jip, Mary had explained that the character she played originally in the play, uh, that she was an old circus performer or something she played. And Originally, the character sang a song that she used to sing when she was a circus performer. Uh -huh. And she and she explained and she said, and I sang the whole song and the audience applauded Mary Martin. And it took them away from the play. And so we had the character sing half the song and then become overcome with emotion. And that's why she didn't sing a whole song. And I thought, well, that's really interesting to me. I thought, oh, that's a really interesting reason why she's not singing a whole song in a straight play. And the woman's response to this was, well, I think it was a jip. So that's when I got up and sort of saved the day and said, you know, how happy we were to have her back. So what had been a kind of awkward moment, evidently I had made okay. So after the radio show was over, I was talking to the in-house press agent and he said, come and say hello to Mary Martin. And I said, uh, she doesn't know who I am. And he said, I said, really, I, I'm, you know, I'm just a fan. And he said, and he drags me over to her. And before I can say anything, he, she says, thank you very much. You just really saved our bacon up there. And I said, 
well, you won't remember, but we used to be pen pals. <laughs> you know, I used to write to you and you said, and I told her my name and she said, well, that explains it. I said, what do you mean? She said, I know exactly who you are. And that now I understand why you saved our bacon. So I said, well, I was seeing the play tonight and that I would, and she said, we'll come back afterwards and we'll talk. And so we did. And I wound up sitting in her dressing room for like an hour after the show. And it was like two professionals in the theater, except that inside I was still 14 and she was still Mary Martin. And, but she was wonderful. And it was such a gift because, you know, we all have had experiences where somebody has done something. Well, not we all have had experiences, but I mean, it's very rare that when somebody like that does something that you have any opportunity to repay it because, yeah. you know, like who am I to repay Mary Martin? You know I mean? It's like, yeah, uneven. So the fact that I was able to, in a very, very, very small way, sort of repay her kindness to me over the years, which she was very generous and kind to me. I mean, she gave me tickets to opening night for I do, I do. I mean, she was really oh. wonderful. And, but just generous, generous with her time and stuff. The fact that I had in some small, tiny way had the opportunity to pay it back in a way that meant something to her was really such a gift yeah. to me because, I mean, you know, I was thrilled. And it was such a kind of coming full circle for somebody that meant so much to me. I mean, when she died, I bet you, I bet you 50 people called me up to say, I'm so sorry about Mary Martin because everybody knew how important she was to me. I mean, you know, she was wonderful. Um, but I mean, how lucky was I to have a chance to give it back? That's what made it so amazing, you know? Yeah. Pretty good. So you were working on the show State Fair next, I think. So you were working with David Merrick towards the very end of his life. Yeah, I what certainly was, was. Yeah. What was <laughs> that experience like? Um, well, by the time I got, now I grew up on David Merrick shows. I mean, I grew up seeing Hello, Dolly and, um, I, you know, all those shows. And so to, yeah. the first time David Merrick came to my office, I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, it was like, how is this possible that David Merrick is coming to my office? You know, now the sad thing was that by the time David Merrick came to my office. He could neither walk nor talk. So it was sort of David Merrick. He looked like David Merrick, but he couldn't talk. And his companion, who was subsequently his wife, would sort of translate for him. So you could see he was in there. You could see he was there. Yeah. But he couldn't speak. So you would say, um, well, we have two options to do uh, the billing. And I would give them each copies of two different billing pages that I had created with different, they were all contractually correct, but some of them were stronger than a placement stuff. And he would go, Ugh. and then she would say, Mr. Merrick feels, and then she would talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> And, and I would think, all that was from the, 
you know, it was very peculiar. And sometimes he wouldn't agree with what she'd say and he would go, but you didn't know what it was he wasn't agreeing with. Or he would thump on the table. He would go like this and he'd thump on it, but you didn't know why he was thumping on the table. Yeah. So it was very peculiar. And then, and it went on like that. And so the, the other people that were involved, which was the theater guild, who was really the producer, would sometimes would defer to what she said. And sometimes they wouldn't defer to what she said because sometimes it didn't make a lot of sense or, you know. Um, but we used to say, but she was standing on top of all his money. So she was, she sort of had more power than she might have in other circumstances. Yeah. So it was very peculiar. And a lot of things went on that we pretended that David Merrick was making decisions that David Merrick probably didn't know about. Yeah. And, or if he did, he didn't have any opinion on it. Or if he did have an opinion, we didn't know what it was. But, um, I mean, there was a whole advertising campaign with funny quotes from David Merrick. And I never knew if he ever saw them. You know, I mean, they were all approved by his companion. So, you know, but it was all very peculiar. Yeah. <laughs> the quotes were actually by him or? Um, no, the advertising agency made them up. Oh, <laughs> But they were proved. So, you know, but it, it, they, they were these sort of snarky, tongue in cheek ads making fun of other shows uh, on Broadway. And it, th there was a photo of David Merrick with his um, fedora and his walking, his gold tipped walking stick and everything. And these kind of snarky quotes which you could sort of imagine did come from him because he was famous for doing that. It's just that in this case, no, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't say those things. It was very odd. Um, I love that show. Yeah. That's a, that's a show that I felt should have been, I think we've talked about this, that it, it, it was kind of the, the, the wrong show in the wrong place. It, it opened the same season as rent. Yeah. And here was this, old-fashioned, feel-good, you know, um, sweet musical about family values and finding love and everything. And it opened at the same, it opened against Rent, which everybody felt was this, you know, cutting-edge, you know, hip, modern show, which actually I think it was a very old-fashioned musical too in a different setting, but it, you know, was kind of a formula musical too. Um, but I always felt that if State Fair had opened it a, a different, you know, an, another season, it might have had a different life uh, because there was a place for it. Yeah. But it wasn't that season. So I want to ask you, I know that you have a close friendship with John Davidson. Who I love John. Yes. He's terrific. You know, I used to tease him and say John was the press agent's, um, you know, uh, press agent's best friend, because you would say to John, how would you feel about uh, judging a um, prettiest pig contest? And he'd say, sure. <laughs> and I'd say, how do you feel about um, um, emceeing a pie eating contest? He'd say, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, uh, how do you feel about um, singing and dancing at 6am on the local talk show? Sure. <laughs> you know? He 
great. And and just had the best attitude about it. You know, he he felt that um, he, he I think I maybe I told you this at one point when we were creating the, the program, the bios for the show before it went out on, on the road. He said, I want to put in my bio that I will uh, greet my fans after every performance in the lobby. And I said, really, do you want to put that in your bio? I mean, it's fine if you want to do it, but if you put it in your bio, you're going to have to do it at every performance. He said, oh, I, w- I will do it at every performance. And I said, really? He said, absolutely. He said, those people have been supporting me my whole career. And if they want to come and say hello to me, I want to say hello to them. And at every stop along the tour, he would arrange for there to be tables set up in the lobby. And after the show, he would go and he'd be at the tables and he got the other actors in the show to do it. He said, you should do this too, if you want. And he would get the younger actors in the, Catherine Crosby would would do it almost every night too, because she also valued the fans. But she would get, you know, Scott Wise and Andrea McCardle and and Donna McKechnie and they would all, you know, the show would be over and and they would change and they would go out in the lobby and they would sign autographs and meet people as long as they wanted to meet with them. And I I mean, it was such a a generous, lovely thing to do. Um, It wasn't just go to the stage door. It was more than that, you know. Yeah. And people loved it. But but also you could see why he had um, a following you know, why people loved him, because he really is genuine about that. Yeah. Nice. So I want to ask you about the experience of going on tour with this show, which you did after the Broadway. Well, first I did the pre-Broadway tour, which was nine months prior to Broadway. And during that tour, we never knew for sure if it was going to come to Broadway. It wasn't supposed to originally. It was always supposed to be a tour. And um, Rogers and Hammerstein organization um, they always intended it to be another um, another R. They want they wanted it to be added to the to the R&H um, collection of shows that was available for for licensing. Yeah, it was never supposed to come to Broadway, but all along the pre-Broadway tour, everybody loved it and it got raves and it just did good business and people really loved it and so. Um, when David Merrick came along and had a lot of deep pockets and said, I want to buy the show, they said, well, no, you can't buy the show, but you can buy into the show. And so once they let him buy into the show, because they could, they didn't have the money to bring it to Broadway without help, that once they allowed David Merrick to bring, to, to buy into it, um, and it was like several million dollars, um, um he he then was calling the shots, even though he couldn't actually call the shots. So yeah. it became a little weird. Um, but so then it was on Broadway, not for terribly long. And then uh, networks came along and wanted to do the first national tour and hired John Davidson to do it. Was, the rest of it was a different cast, but John was still the star because he loved doing it and he wanted to do it. And um, at one point they talked to me and they said, um, we're considering you. And I said, well, I don't mean to be rude, but why on earth wouldn't you use me? I mean, first of all, obviously, I know the show backwards and forwards, and I know what what we have to sell. But second of all, I have all the materials. (laughs) I have have the artwork, I have have everything. (laughs) So, 
seems like it would be a good idea. And they agreed. They said yes. But it was very funny because they said, well, you know, I was like, I was up for it, but I wasn't being handed it. I said, okay, but I have everything. Yeah. So I have I have the television spots. I have all the artwork. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. Who in your career that you've worked with have you been the most nervous to work with? Maybe maybe George C. Scott at the beginning because he was very scary looking, you know, and he had a he had a very scary reputation. He was known as the big drinker, and he was known to have to go on tears, and you know, he he had that reputation, and. I was a little kid and I thought, um, how do I, you know, like, that's going to be interesting. I'm going to show you another picture. I thought this sort of captured it perfectly. Oh. Because it looks like I'm sort of begging him to do something. It's like I'm saying, please, George. So um, I, I want to ask you, I don't, I'm not going to make you give examples, obviously, but how would you approach promoting a show that you yourself didn't like or wouldn't want to see? Huh. Well, turn things down. And I've actually turned things down because either the subject matter was something I didn't want to be involved with or um, I felt the people, the creators in some way were trouble and I didn't want to be associated with them. So there have been, there have been situations like that. Um, I can, f if I can find something good to say, if I can find something to hang it on that, that is positive, yeah. then I can, then I can do it. If I can't, I can't. And I'll give so I want to ask you, what is a photo or an interview that you've been proud to get? One comes to mind about State Fair, which is that when State Fair was on the road, it was just one of many shows that was out touring the country. It wasn't, you know, pre-Broadway at this point. It wasn't anything. And I got a call from um, Peter Marks, who was then uh, on the theater desk at the New York Times. He wasn't yet the critic or anything. He was just a theater writer. And he said, I'm doing a show. I'm doing a piece for the, for the arts and leisure section about touring shows. And I see you're going to have a show that's on the road at the right period of time. And I want to talk to you about it. And I said, sure. So we started to talk about State Fair and I was telling him about State Fair. And I guess I was very enthusiastic and very, you know, uh, I had a million ideas and I was just being me. And he listened and we chatted and I didn't know him at all. It was the first time I'd ever spoken to him. We, he had just joined the Times at that point. And a couple of weeks later, he called me back and he said um, uh, he was arranging to come out to um, Des Moines, where State Fair began the tour. And he said, you know, this piece was supposed to be about like four or five shows and about the phenomenon of touring and this and that. And he said, but you were so enthusiastic and so filled with hooks for stories that I went back to my editor and said, let's make it all about State Fair. And what should have been a, what was supposed to be just a throwaway, you know, story that we were included in, you know, with with a couple of other touring shows became the lead story in the Sunday Times Arts and Leisure section with the biggest 
photo that I've ever seen. It was such a big photo that it went below the fold. So it was more than half of the front page of the arts and leisure section. And during the course of this interview that Peter did, he talked to every single principal in the show. He talked to the, 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 the stage managers. He talked to the producers. He talked to everybody involved with the show because he was so enthused about it. And he said to me later, he said, he said, I don't know if they know this, but this is all you because I had no intention of doing it this way. But when I went back to my editor with all these hooks that you had given me, yeah. it turned into something else. And he said, this is one case where, you know, there's a direct correlation, of, you know, cause and effect. And I was very proud of that because it wasn't, it wasn't like I was doing anything that I shouldn't, you know, I, I was doing what I always do, which is you try to come up with the right angles and the right hooks for somebody. But that was a case where you, I was very proud of it because it really, um, that, that piece was a big deal for this show. And it, it kind of raised it to another level in a way that it hadn't been before. So it was pretty special. Yeah. So I'm not going to ask you about Dream, but for whoever's listening, I encourage you very much to buy Susan Showman's book called Backstage Pass to Broadway, because the experience of doing that show is described so vividly in there that I almost don't want to spoil it. So the thing I just want to ask you is, would you want to do another Broadway show? In a minute. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, uh, there's nothing quite like it, you know? And uh, uh, sure, I mean, if only we had them back soon, that's- Hopefully. We all miss it, but uh, sure, always. But uh, yeah, I mean, Dream was, Dream was one of those shows that, you know, had a lot of issues and, you know, a lot of big personalities, some not behaving terribly well. But, um, and probably a little ill-conceived in some ways. Um, but a lot of wonderful people were in it. And uh, a lot of not so wonderful people too, but mostly, you know, wonderful people like John Pizzarelli and Margaret Whiting, who were both terrific. And um, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. Read the book. As <laughs> <laughs> so, the press agent. Yeah. So... Who are some of the people and shows that you've represented very recently? Like maybe just before? Um, most recently, I've been doing a lot of cabaret, actually. And I, uh, one of the things I've, I've been doing is I've been working with someone named Deborah Grace Weiner, who's also an author, um, who's written a lot about cabaret and the golden age of cabaret. And she has two wonderful series. One was at 54 Below and one was at Birdland. And they were both sort of great American songbooks. She's she was the head, she was the creator of the lyrics and lyricist um, uh, shows at the 92nd Street Y for the last 10 years or something. And when she left the Y, she started doing these programs, which were similar in in terms of focusing on an individual songwriter and then bringing in top Broadway people to sing and perform. And um, and I was working with her a lot on these two different venues that she was doing um god it seems so long ago um i actually have have a show that's supposed to be happening and who knows when um i actually have two shows that are supposed to be happening who knows when but 
you know, until it's real. Yeah. Who knows? So the last question I want to ask you is a question that's also the title of a chapter in your book, which is how has PR changed? How has ah, changed? That's a that's a long, complicated question. But I think the biggest thing that's changed it obviously is the internet and the fact that so much of it is now done in a kind of impersonal way rather than actually picking up the phone and speaking to somebody. Um, and that it's now, I mean, uh, there are, there are people that I deal with that I am not sure whether it's a male or female, you know, maybe they have a name like, you know, Pat or something and yeah. you don't know. And after a certain point, there's no way to ask. And so every so often, you know, I'll, I'll be dealing with somebody and I'll have the entire relationship will be online. And then at some point you do have a chance to meet them or something. And I'm always surprised because they're nothing like I thought they'd be because it's all electronic, you know? So I think that's the biggest thing. So it, in some ways it's become much less personal and, and um, which is peculiar, you know, because it's all about relationships and contacts and, and all of that. So that, I think that's a big deal. Um, and the other is that uh, everything's faster. Everything's 24 seven. Everything is, you know, I want it yesterday. There's no, um, you kind of can't catch your breath most of the time because it's, it's kind of unrelenting. And I mean, even with shows, I mean, I have producers that send you emails at two in the morning and, and are very annoyed if you don't answer it two in the morning. Yeah. You know, and you think, well, am I encouraging bad behavior if I answer at two in the morning? Maybe, you know. Yeah. On the other hand, do they, uh, are they entitled to an answer at two in the morning? You know, I mean, these are interesting things to think about. But that is the, that is now the expectation is that it's just, you, you have no boundaries. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I'm joined by legendary triple threat Bob Fitch. In addition to creating the role of Rooster in Annie on Broadway, Bob Fitch has also been featured in such shows as The Will Rogers Follies, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Mac and Mabel, Do Re Mi, Henry Sweet Henry, Coco, Promises Promises, Lorelai, Sherry, Flora the Red Menace, Baker Street, Tenderloin, The Girl Who Came to Supper, Mame, Hell's a Poppin', Pieces of Eight, Do Black Patent Shoes Really Reflect Up, My Fair Lady at City Center, Accidental Death of an Anarchist, Seventy Girls, Seventy and Follies at Encores, and Anything Goes and Half Past Wednesday Off-Broadway. He is also a legendary magician, having created acts for people like David Copperfield, David Blaine, and Chris Angel. On the screen, he appeared in Once Upon a Mattress, Pennies from Heaven, and Stephen King's Thinner. I hope you all will enjoy that episode. Thanks for tuning in.